As those bastards are making their way around, I invite you to turn to John chapter 20. Now, if you don't have a Bible or an electronic device, you know on your electronic device, they have these things called apps, okay? And then you can, like, download a Bible. But if you want, a, like, a, like, a, like, a print Bible and you don't have one, there's some in the back. You can grab one on the way out. We'll also flash the text up here on the spring. You know, spring is obviously the time that we celebrate Easter. Um, spring is also, for, for, for sports fans, it is the smorgasbord, is it not? Okay. It's the convergence of all things sports related. And, and, and if you don't know me, you know that I'm just a bit, bit of a sports nut. And so this time of year, March Madness, spring football, America's national pastime baseball, the NBA playoffs, even the Olympics are cycling around. And all of us, or most sports fans, have some sort of indelible sports memory, things that just, that, that, that just kind of rests in your soul and that gives you a happy moment when things aren't, aren't going well with your team. But if we're honest, okay, any sports fan worth his, his or her salt will tell you, it's not the wins that you remember the most. What is it? Oh, the losses, okay, the epic failures, okay, the, the, the ones that just got away, the colossal mistakes. And we know that the history of sports is littered with people who, despite all their other accomplishments, are defined by that one epic failure. Who can forget Bill Buckner? Okay, we're going to flash this picture up here. This is really a picture of my dad, but I'm just saying it's Bill Buckner. Okay, but anyway, Bill Buckner, Major League Baseball player, accomplished much. Okay, he, was, he played 22 years in the big leagues for a variety of teams. He had a career batting average of 289. That is nothing to, to sniff at, right? He had almost 200 home runs, 2,700 hits. He won the NLB bat, um, uh, National League batting title in 1980, was an all-star soon thereafter. But however, however, despite all of his solid career achievements, Bill Buckner is not known by them. He is known by his one spectacular failure that happened in the 1986 World Series. And, and if you're a, a Boston Red Sox fan, God bless you. But anyway, we're, we're going to go there this morning. Okay, the, the Red Sox are on the cusp of their first World Series title in almost 70 years because they were still suffering under the curse of the Bambino. Do you know what that was? Babe Ruth played for them. The owner of the Red Sox traded Babe Ruth, I, I kid you not, for the rights to a play, okay? And so, and so the Red Sox, as they do, were suffering for some seven decades, but it all came down game six. Game six. And the Red Sox were up three games to two. It was the ninth inning, and the ball was hit down the first baseline, and Bill Buckner, all he needed to do was field it cleanly, touch first base, okay? Curse of the Bambino was gone. But as we infamously know, it rolled through his legs, Okay, the, dot, the, uh, the Mets went on to win that game and ultimately the next game. And despite all of his other accomplishments, Bill Buckner will be forever marked by a singular, spectacular failure. Okay? Now, by the way, there's a redemptive part of this. Some 20 years later, when the Sox finally won a World Series in 2000, they won it in 04, they won it again in 07, they brought Bill Buckner back and honored him. And they, the people gave him a four-minute standing ovation, okay? But there's pictures like that on the internet that are never going away, okay? <laughs> now, 
case number two. Let me introduce to you a man named Gerald. Okay? Gerald may not be quite as known to you, at all, or if at all. He's actually one of our own here in Tallahassee. Is Gerald in the audience? Okay, nobody tell him that, that we did this, okay? There's Gerald. He is a successful lawyer here in town. He, he practices law for Ostley McMullen. He's a real estate business and corporate lawyer, upstanding member of the bar. He got his, his, uh, his law degree for FSU Law School, distinguished himself in many ways. But what you may not know is that Gerald went by the name of Jerry in college, and his last name is Thomas. And Jerry Thomas kicked for the Seminoles in the early 90s. And in 1991, when FSU played Miami, number one versus number two, it was the biggest regular season sports game in the, in the history, they say, of college football. It was right here at Doak Campbell Stadium. What people don't remember about Jerry Thomas is that he had kicked three field goals in that game. If Florida State was up 16-7 to in the fourth quarter, if it wasn't for Jerry, they would not even be in the game. But with 29 seconds, they lined up to kick the field goal attempt from 34 yards, and FSU fans woke up on November 17, 1991. The headline in the Tallahassee Democrat, what did it say? Wide rights. And there is a picture of Jerry. Now, seriously, you ought to go online and read about this guy's story. It's fascinating, just the redemptive things that happened in his life after that. And I'm sorry to traumatize all you FSU fans on such an important holiday, but tough, okay? It kind of fits with it. We have our own Tennessee fans. Oh, we do. We do, we do, we do. But did you know, okay, switching gears here a second, that Christians or the Bible, we have our equivalent, We have our own Bill Buckner. We have our own Jerry Thomas. In fact, our guy, who's infamously known by his failures, is in fact named Thomas too. He's Thomas the disciple or Thomas the apostle. But you know him as what? Doubting Thomas. Even if you don't go to church and you're only here and here every so often, you undoubtedly have heard the name Doubting Thomas. See, what's interesting about Thomas is that Thomas gets kind of a bad rap because Thomas, by all accounts, was a very faithful disciple. Um, He followed Jesus for three years. Earlier in John, he had said, look, Jesus, you're heading up to Jerusalem to die. We're right with you. Thomas was a loyal disciple. He proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, church history tells us that Thomas went on to take the gospel to where? To India and suffered a martyr's death there. But what do we remember him by? What does the world remember him by? By his spectacular failure. Now, before we look at Thomas's story and try to understand what it means for us, let me ask you a question. Do you have a spectacular failure that's a part of your story that you think still defines you? Do you have an epic fail, a colossal mistake, just an unspeakable blunder that you feel still hovers over you like a cloud or or follows you around like a bad disease that you can't get rid of? And that no matter what you do, that failure, whether it was with your children or your marriage or your job or your finances, it just 
continues to not only dog you, but also to define you. Does anyone relate to that this morning? If so, there's good news through the story of Thomas. So let's look there. John chapter 20, just eight verses here, beginning in verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Them meaning the disciples. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's just pray with me. Would you, Lord, all of us, because we're human, have failures, mistakes, sins, catastrophe, that that in some way we feel still mark us, still go with us still dog us. But Lord, we pray that you would give us a glimpse in this passage that the most important thing that defines us in our lives is not what we've done, but in fact, Jesus, what you have done for us. So as we trace the story of Thomas, give us grace and mercy to to locate ourselves in that story and in turn find life and find it in you. So we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You know, the best stories are always the easiest to understand, okay? So this is no Matrix trilogy, okay, that we have to like spend hours and hours over the philosopher's table trying to understand. It's pretty straightforward. And so let me just kind of mark out briefly what's going on here. Jesus had been crucified a week or two before this. And now, of course, he is resurrected, come back to life. And John tells us that Jesus is in the middle of making a series of appearances. And his first one, interestingly enough, was to Mary Magdalene, a faithful disciple, a woman. He next appeared, John tells us, to the group of disciples. Okay, By this time it was 11 because Judas had already committed suicide. And Jesus had appeared to the disciples. And it tells us in that text that Jesus had shown them his wounds, that he had said just proving his existence to them. But interestingly, Thomas was not there. Now, we don't know where Thomas was, if it was family responsibilities or work or just an extended stay in the bathroom. Okay, We don't know, okay? Do any of you wives, by the way, feel like you're married to a Thomas? Okay, just, that just, 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 That's to discuss over lunch, okay? So Thomas is told by the other disciples that they had seen Jesus, that he was risen from the dead. And Thomas says, with his infamous, 
ah, you've lost your minds. I'm going to believe if and only if. Not only do I need to see the wounds of Jesus, I need to touch them. I need to put my finger on them. I need to put my finger in his hand and my hand in his side. And then, of course, Jesus appears, and what does he say? He says, Thomas, believe and don't disbelieve. And that word disbelieve in many translations is translated doubt, okay? So that's where we get the phrase doubting Thomas. Now, that doubt, that, that's an interesting word, okay? Particularly for us in a postmodern context, we're all about doubt, by the way. Okay, doubt is cool. Doubt is hip. Doubt is chic, okay? It is, it is, it is cool to doubt. It is cool to sit around sipping cappuccinos and reading David Foster Wallace or Nietzsche and saying, we can't know anything for certain, okay? We're just, we're, we're in a, a perpetual cloud of ambiguity. Now, was Thomas that kind of doubter? Okay? Was Thomas a skeptic? Okay, and I think to answer that question, we have to distinguish between two different kinds of doubt, And there would be, on one hand, what we would call reasonable doubt, and then emotional doubt. Okay, so reasonable doubt, or or evidentiary doubt, is, is a legitimate doubt. It's a doubt based upon a need for legitimate evidence. So, so let me give you an example. Back in the 80s, um, Josh McDowell wrote his, his now famous book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Okay? And it was proving all, set out to prove all sorts of things, that the, the scriptures are the inspired word of God, and that Jesus had, was raised from the grave. And because he was writing 30 years ago to a modern mindset which needed a proof for everything. See, science was king, and if I can't see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, it probably doesn't exist. And so, so, so McDowell was writing into, into that sort of context, and I remember... 1989, I was a campus crusader at University of Tennessee, and we went down to Daytona Beach, and it was the largest spring break in the history of Daytona, 500,000 people. And they kind of set us loose with our little gospel tracks to share the gospel with drunk frat boys and steroid-ingesting bodybuilders, okay? Now, now, and as Mike Tyson would say, that was scary. Okay? It was very scary, okay? Now, now let me say this. I don't think that's the kind of doubt that we deal with today, okay? Um, and, and because, you know, people in a postmodern context have no problem believing in miracles. If you don't believe me, okay, just think about all the movies and the books that have come out about the supernatural and the afterlife. Heaven is for real, 90 minutes in heaven, okay? Books galore on the, on, on the spiritual and the supernatural. See, see, most people are pretty in tune to the idea that if there's a God or greater reality, Things like raising people from the dead is not that big a thing, okay? Now, relevance, what relevance that has to my life, that's probably more the issue. But see, reasonable doubt, I don't think, is what we so much wrestle with. There might be a few of you in the Ivy Tower, in academia, okay, who, 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 are, who are still operating from that, i got to have some proofs. That's not primarily where we operate from culturally, and I don't think it's where Thomas was operating from. See, see, Thomas's issue, and I think our issue too, is one of emotional doubt. Okay, now let, let me explain the difference and what I mean. Those of you who've been around here a long time have heard me tell this story, but it's Easter, so 
I get to tell it again, I guess. Okay, so 1987, I was graduating from Eastridge High School in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Eastridge, the redneck capital, not of Tennessee, but quite possibly of the universe, okay? And, 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 and there was this wild speculative rumor, you know, like wildfire rushing through the hallways that the president of the United States was coming to speak <laughs> at our graduation, okay? Ronald Reagan, okay? Ronaldus Magnus, okay? Ronald the Great. I'm talking about bring down the, the Berlin Wall, fight the communist Gorbachev, that Ronald Reagan. And I remember as, as, as that rumor was, was, was catching wind, there was a lot of incredibly like, come on, okay? I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when the presidential motorcade rolls up to the arena. I'll believe it when they have to arrest all the protesters and malcontents who are littered along the way. I'll believe it when I see it. Now, understand something. We weren't disbelieving that he could. He was a leader of the free world, right? He could do whatever. If he wanted to show up at our graduation, he could show up at our graduation. We weren't disbelieving that he could. What, What was it then? We were disbelieving that he would. See, we didn't want to get our hopes up. We didn't want to dream the impossible. We didn't want to be let down and to have our hopes dashed. That's called emotional doubt. And by the way, he did come to our graduation, and he did speak. That's a whole other story, not just to our class, but all the graduating classes of Chattanooga. It was right after we had bombed Libya, and he came to give a, a speech, and it was great, and those days are long gone, and that's all I'm going to say politically this morning. Anyway, okay. Guys, that's Thomas. That's Thomas. See, Thomas, he didn't need evidentiary evidence. He had seen it all. He had seen the miracles. He had seen, guys, two weeks before this, he saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He had seen Jesus heal, cast out demons, cure the blind and the deaf and the mute, He, in fact, had seen Jesus feed the 5,000. For Thomas, it wasn't, could Jesus? It was, would he? See, Thomas, I think, is not so much asking for naked proof or evidence. Thomas is just looking to insulate himself from any more crushing disappointment. Can you identify See, Thomas, in his mind, had trusted Jesus one too many times. He had followed this man for three years. He was waiting for the king to come. He was waiting for him to overthrow the Romans. He, had, he wanted to vanquish the enemies. And as Roger Daltrey of the Who would say, I'm not going to get fooled again. Okay? It's not going to happen. Can you relate? Now, if you would allow me this just for a second. My, here, here's just a theory. If I were to interview you, or, or if we were good to go out to lunch, which you, of course, would pay for, but if we were to do that, okay, and I was to sort of engage you and find out, hey, where are you spiritually? Hey, you seem not spiritually connected at this time in your life, or maybe you haven't been in church for a long time, or maybe you had a bad church experience, I, I, whatever. Whatever the case, you were, you were on the periphery spiritually, and we were to really get at the heart of it. My guess is for most of you, it would not be about reasonable doubt or evidentiary doubt that you needed some more proofs or some more scientific 
uh, reasoning around the resurrection or anything like that. It would be emotional doubt. If you were brutally honest, you might say something like, Pastor Paul, I've tried giving my life to God before, and it's just never worked. I have been let down one too many times. I prayed that God would heal my marriage. I prayed that he would save my kids. I prayed that he would provide for us financially, and he, he, he did not come through. And my life is marked by severe doubt, severe disappointment, not that God could, but, but, but will he? Will he move? Will he work? And I'm just not going there. Can you relate? Here's a question. Are you controlling your doubts in that situation? Or are your doubts controlling you? And if that's the case, what, what can we learn from Thomas here? Where do we go? If, that, if that's you, if, your life, if you feel like your life has been marked by repeated disappointments, discouragements, shattered dreams, and you're just not willing to trust again, where do we go from here? Now, here's what I want you to see okay, from this passage. This passage, okay, even though we call it Doubting Thomas, it's not about Thomas, fundamentally. See, it's not about what Thomas does or doesn't do. It's about what Jesus does. Okay, look back at the text. Okay? So, so we, we have the setting, right? So although it says the text, and this is down in verse 26, although the doors were locked, and by the way, let me just pause and say, is that a metaphor for your life, maybe, spiritually? That you've just so partitioned yourself off and cordoned your heart off from experiencing any more disappointment with God that you kind of like figuratively have the bars, the, the, the doors barred to your life and heart? It says, although the doors were locked, those never stopped Jesus, by the way. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, now what's, here, I want you to think with me for a second. Why did Jesus come back? Because in a lot of ways, we could say it really wasn't necessary at all. Jesus had already appeared to the disciples, and he had already shown them the wounds. And he could have simply said, Thomas, you're going to be just like the other uh, millennia of Christian down through the ages. You're going to have to believe the word of the apostles. By the way, that's why we're here, is it not? We're believing in the testimony okay, of these men, these eyewitnesses. And Jesus very reasonably could have said, Thomas, just trust and believe my witness to these disciples who you spent the last three years with. Jesus could have done that reasonably. But he doesn't. He comes back. And, and with the question we want to answer, because I, I think it holds the, the, the key to this passage, is why? Why does Jesus come back? Hey, look back at the text, verse 27. Who is the first person Jesus talks to? Verse 27. Then he said to whom? Thomas. See, the most amazing thing about this passage, folks, is not that Jesus shows up for a second time. No, no, that's an amazing testament to grace. That's an amazing revelation that he gives his disciples. The, no, I think the most amazing thing about this passage 
is that he seemingly comes back just for Thomas. You see, Jesus could have totally blown Thomas off because of his doubts and unbelief. I mean, I mean, let's think about it. Thomas, how many bites at the apple do you need? Okay, you spent three years with me. We've been down this road. You've seen the miraculous. You know it's you know it's true. You've witnessed that it's true. These men whom you've entrusted your life to are telling you that that I'm raised from the doubt. I'm raised from the dead. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus never defines Thomas according to his doubt. He doesn't let doubt become the controlling narrative of Thomas's life. Instead, what does Jesus do? He pursues Thomas. He loves Thomas. He pursues and reveals himself to Thomas. Where? At his greatest point of doubt and weakness. And let me just tell you, if you're new around here, the point of all this is simply this. This, my friends, is the gospel. This is the good news. The heart of the gospel is not whatever doubts you think define your life, whatever mistakes you think you've made, whatever catastrophic failures dog you. The gospel is not about what you have done or not done. The gospel is about what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus, in this passage, has not only died, he has not only been raised from the dead, but he has come on a one-way mission to reveal himself to Thomas. To pursue Thomas at Thomas's greatest point of doubt and weakness. And make no mistake, there was something in this for Thomas even beyond his own personal, spiritual nurturing of his heart. You see, Thomas had to be an apostle. And Thomas was going to go on to testify in India and all those other places, which means he had to be a physical eyewitness. And God, Jesus said, I'm not done with you, Thomas. I've got special plan and mission for you. And so I'm not letting this colossal epic failure define you. In fact, I'm pursuing you. And I'm loving you. Not, 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 not in spite of your epic fail, but in, but in the middle of that epic fail. I'm approaching you, Thomas. I'm loving you, Thomas. I'm pursuing you, Thomas. Folks, that is the gospel. That wherever you are today, whatever you think defines your life in terms of your doubt and your discouragement and your disbelief and your epic fails and your colossal failures, Jesus says, in me, these no longer define you. It's not about you. It's about me and what I have done for you. And now, how do we make that real? You may say, Pastor, well, that sounds really great. <laughs> sounds like pretty good news. Okay. How, does, how does this transaction work? Okay, let's look back at the text. Verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay. But these are written, meaning the story we just read, okay? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, my, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the goal. Let me, let me tell you something. You may not know why you're here this morning, okay? 
you, somebody in your family may have drugged you, and you know if you did not come, you would not get free lunch. Okay? I, I don't know. What, what, whatever, whatever it is. I, you're visiting from out of town. You're a college student who hasn't been in church. You're, I, I don't know. What, whatever defines you, you're not sure why you're here. I'll tell you why you're here. So that you may have life in his name. That's, that's why we're sitting under the word of God, hearing the story of Thomas, so that you can have life. Doesn't mean Jesus is going to fix all your problems. He's not. Okay? Doesn't mean that the road will not be marked with suffering in this life. It will. But we're talking about life now that's full of hope and meaning and transformation, but also eternal life, of which this life is just a tiny drop. Two things have to happen, though, for that to be a reality. Let's go back to the text. Two things, and then we're done. Jesus would want us to remember, number one, and respond. Remember and respond. Let's talk about remember first. Here's what I think, you know what I think amazed Thomas the most about this passage? You know what I think amazed him most? Is that it seemed to Thomas that Jesus could read his mind. It seemed to Thomas that Jesus was right there when he told the other disciples that he needed some proof. It seemed that Jesus anticipated Thomas and knew Thomas's needs in ways that Thomas didn't even know himself. And you know what about that? He's exactly right. He's exactly right. You see, John wants us to see and remember, Christian, how Jesus is patient with you. How Jesus loves you. How Jesus knows you. How Jesus is intimately in tune with every failure that you think marks your life. I'm indebted to Tim Keller for this illustration, but he talks about the movie The Fisher King. And in this movie, Robin Williams is a homeless man. And it's through a series of catastrophic events that he finds himself homeless and destitute. But he ends up observing and watching this woman, because his wife had died, tragically. And he sort of falls in love with this woman from a distance. Okay, So from his purchase as a homeless man, he watches her go to work. And he watches her return home, and he watches her shop, and he sees her interactions. And by kind of seeing her and observing who she is, he falls in love with her. So he has a friend, Robin Williams does, who, who wants to help Robin Williams get back on his feet. And so he, he gets Robin Williams and helps him clean up and take a shower and eat meals and, and, and get gussied up so that he can finally go out with this woman. And so a very poignant scene in this movie is that they're walking kind of along the sidewalk, and she is just amazed about why in the world Robin Williams would take an interest in her. Okay? What is it about me? Or if you really knew me, you wouldn't be this interested. If you, could, if you saw the real me, okay, you would not be so attracted. And he says something really powerful. You know what he says? Is I do know you, and I've been watching you, and I've seen your flaws, and I still love you. Four Oaks, 
That's the gospel. Remember. And secondly, respond. See, there is a response that's necessary on the part of Thomas. Okay? Now, now, remember, Thomas had imposed a condition for following Jesus. And what was it? Not only do I want to see your wounds, what, do, what, what else does he want to do? I want to touch them. Yeah, I want to touch them. You place a condition. And guys, we oftentimes do that when it comes to God. God, I'll follow you if, if you fix that marriage, if you clean up this mess in my, in my background, if you make this go away, if you relieve that debt, if you I mean, fill in the blank for you. Now, here's what's interesting about Thomas, and, and most of the commentators are pretty unanimous about this that Thomas actually never touched Jesus. Did you notice that? In the text, Jesus invites him. Thomas doesn't touch Jesus, and, 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 and here's why. He doesn't need to. Jesus had revealed himself to Thomas, and Thomas gave up his condition. And what does he say? Look at the text. My Lord and my God. And do you know what's amazing about that profession? It is hard to find a profession in Scripture that is any more powerful and clearer than this profession by Thomas. Because here's what Thomas is saying. Not only are you Lord and God, okay, your Savior, your King of the world, you've died on a cross, okay, you've saved man from his sin, but guess what? You're what? My Lord and my Savior. See, Thomas understood what, and Tim Keller has noted this as well, that Jesus, there is no such thing as a detached, distant affirmation of Jesus. There's no accepting him as good teacher or moral value. See, you know, we're, we're in a culture that, that, loves the, that loves the words of Jesus where they fit into a nice political narrative, but what we don't want is a king. We don't want a bloody cross. And as Keller says, Jesus comes saying, either crown me or kill me. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. And Thomas says, crown me. I'll crown you, Lord. You are my God and my King. Fundamentally, folks, that's what it means to be a Christian. Now, let me close and say this. When confronted with his doubts and disbelief, it would have been very easy for Thomas to respond differently than this, okay? So, so many of you know I have a great aversion to the outdoors, okay? And the, and the outdoors is defined as anything that's not air-conditioned, okay? So, but, so, but, but I remember in the hot, humid nights we lived in Mississippi, I would come out of, my, of the seminary and it was dark, okay? Honey, this seemed to always be dark in Mississippi. I don't know. Anyway, well, I walked out, and I would always hear this crunch, crunch, crunch under my feet, okay? And the crunching was also moving, okay? And I realized I was walking across cockroaches, okay? This is just what happens in Mississippi. So anyway, we, so I remember, so unless you got the light out and shined it down on the ground, okay, then this is what you have. But when you shine that light, what do cockroaches do? Run, okay, flee. I don't know about you, but if I was Thomas, you know, when Jesus shows up, I think I'm kind of heading over to the corner, right? 
I think I'm, I'm taking that extended bathroom break with words with friends or whatever, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm out of there. Okay, that was for you, Pete Butler, okay? But Thomas doesn't. Thomas comes into the light. And he says, my Lord and my God. I was at a friend in high school. There was a group of us who were at East Ridge High School, and we weren't Christians, um, and we went off to school together at the University of Tennessee, and I became a Christian after my freshman year. Professed faith in Christ. It was one of these kinds of things. My God and my Savior. I didn't know much, but I knew that. But there was one of the friends that I had, I was sharing my faith with her. I was telling her my testimony. And she said, you know, and she was a, one of these emotional doubt people, I just can't go there again. I just can't disappoint God one more time. See, that's, that's many of you. You, you, may, you may doubt God. There's others of you. You just doubt yourself. But you know what? Jesus died for you too. Jesus loves you too. That's the gospel for you. That Jesus never lets our doubts define us. He just simply says, come. Come to the light and find life, true life in my name. And when we do that, it doesn't mean all of our problems go away or Jesus sleeps it all under the carpet or there's not consequences and all those things. It just simply means this. You now have life. You have it abundantly. Not just in this life, but for eternity. So what say you? Is he your Savior and your God? Because there's no other option. You know, let me close with this. We don't, we don't do altar calls here at Four Oaks because in the South, a lot of us grew up recognizing, understanding that, that coming down the aisle does not necessarily mean the same thing as coming to Christ, right? Not always the same thing. But you know what? We don't want to lose the urgency of response. That you are here in this time, in this place, so that what John says here, that Jesus did these signs, and they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe meaning to entrust yourself, to follow, to lay your life down unconditionally. So it doesn't take the urgency off responding. As you think about this text, and as we sing this last song and close our service, if God's stirring your hearts, if you just feel like, you know, Pastor Paul, there is just these things in my life that continue to dog me. I need someone to pray for me. I need someone to talk to. Maybe a light has come on for you for the first time this morning or the first time in a long time. Elders and pastors will be up front after the service. We would love to talk with you, pray with you, go off in private somewhere, hear your story. But don't let that window close. Thomas didn't. He says, my Lord and my God. Let's pray.